You got a man cave, a garage, a bar, a house that has signs in it. Well, let me help you out, people. Go to Facebook and follow Kelly Virgin or Instagram K underscore Virgin underscore designs. Kelly is absolutely phenomenal in his work. He can make memories matter. His detail and the nostalgia he brings to life is unbelievable. I've been honored in the past to receive pieces of his work, and I cannot get over how well these things are. The Sands, Stardust, and recently the Surf Ballroom and Intersection signs of where the Buddy Holly crash site happened. If you don't believe me, look at his work on his Instagram or his Facebook. Trust me, reach out to Kelly. You'll be glad you did, as am I. Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. Today, he's a former film and digital editor at Wide World of Sports and Paramount Pictures. He was an on-air host in L.A. and produced the nominated Caravans Cubana Late Night Sessions. He has written Glenn Fittich in and a family memoir called Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz, The Jewish Mob, A Family Affair. Let's welcome in Alan Geik. Alan, thank how you. are you? I'm great, and thank you so much for having me on your show, Tommy. You are more than welcome. We are here once again at the Lemon Tree Cafe and Market in Las Vegas, located at 6111 South Buffalo Drive, Suite 150. Go to LemonTreeCafeLasVegas.com, or you can follow them on Instagram at Lemon Tree Cafe and Market. You can also click a link in the show notes. But if you're going to come here, and I highly suggest you do, because it has a great vibe, they have Lavazza Coffee, house-made pastries, a full high tea service, great dining room seating, and a wood-fired pizza oven. Ellen, you and I were talking. It's a great place. I love it. I've never been here before. I'm definitely coming back. (laughs) Well, let's get into it. You lived in London from 66 to 68, which is a great era of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Yes. How was that? It was a great time to be there. I, I went not as a lark, but I, I wound up at, I got invited by a professor to said, come to the London School of Economics. I used to argue with him at City College. And so I wound up going there and getting a master's degree. And then I said, this is great. And I taught in a college in London. It was the best time to be there. As you mentioned, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles. It was uh, such an alive city. But I, I wanted to be in the film business and not be in an academic world. So I wound up going back to New York and working in the sports business, which was great fun, too, because every day was D-Day. Uh, uh, every show had its own uh, uh, deadline the next weekend. And as we used to joke... Uh, you could you could die, but you can't get sick. Uh, 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 that would be the only excuse for not finishing a job was that you you died. So uh, I wound up uh, moving out to uh, L.A. in the uh, late seventies. But London was a great place to be, a great experience. So how did you become a film editor at Wide World of Sports? Well, I I, I 
when I came back from England for a while, I was looking for a job. I didn't want to be in the film, in the, in the uh, academic world or financial world. So I uh, said, let me, I really want to be in the film business. So I wound up applying for a job as a film editor without even really knowing what it was. And the guy who was doing the hiring was a guy from my neighborhood in the Bronx. He said, well, why don't you work here for a few weeks? So I wound up. He said, you'll find a job uh, through us. So I wound up working in a film lab in New York as a customer service person. And the first people that came in were two guys from L.A. who were producing a show for Time Life Film called The World of Sports Illustrated. It was the poor man's wor uh, a wide world of sports. And they hired me because I knew the labs. And I had been there maybe an hour. <laughs> I didn't even know where the coffee was. And so they hired me. And the next week, I went from the lowest level to uh, moved up in the editing world. And uh, from then on, I just kept getting jobs in the sports business, and I wound up uh, working at Wide World of Sports, which at the time was like the highest level of being in the sports business. But I said, I really want to be in the film business, so I moved to L.A. with no job, and uh, it worked out fine. You couldn't get that job like that these days. No way. And you couldn't even move. I mean, mobility is so much less now than it was in the late 60s, 70s, 80s. As you said, uh, you have a job now. You're, unless maybe in IT or some specialized areas. But I could have never moved out to L.A. My rent at the time was when I moved to L.A. was about $450 for a two-bedroom apartment uh, two blocks from the beach oh. so uh as you said i would have needed a lot of income right away just to live in la now yeah you had a 25 year stint in la though as a public on-air host how did that all come about uh, another uh a lucky thing i listened to an, an afro-cuban show i always like that music among other kinds of music and uh i called up a guy on a radio show Right after I got the job at Paramount, within the same month, everything changed. And I said to him, well, what are you doing here? He said, on, on this late night show, he said, I'm just here till I could find someone to take over for me. <laughs> so I never thought of being a radio host. I said, well, what about me? He said, come by next week. And I did. And I said, oh, this will be fun for uh, a few months to do this radio show. 25 years later, I was still doing it. And I made $20 in 25 years. It was a public radio show. And uh, a $20 bribe I didn't take. It would have been an even $100. But we all joke about it. Uh, because And the show, for a college radio show, to be on the air for 50 years is pretty extraordinary and we just had i went to la for the 50th anniversary festival on the lawn of the campus there were thousands of people there and they were it was sort of a family and it still is and i may go back and do the show and uh send them in from las vegas oh that'd be great hopefully you get more than 20 bucks yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> your father was lou yes he was not allowed into the organized crime by your uncles Correct. But was he connected? Well, it's interesting you ask that, Tommy, because a few people along the way since I had the book, it seems so odd because he was so close to them and he did things mm -hmm. for them. And uh, uh, But he himself was never arrested. He had no 
criminal history, and uh, he was nowhere involved as the other ones were who were arrested many times and who had that kind of reputation. But we do remember uh, FBI coming to the house one time just to checking on Uncle George, and uh, who was uh, by that point a big shot in Las Vegas. Uh, but uh, my father, I called him mob adjacent more recently because they all respected him. And he wound up in the trucking, but he was, for most of my youth, he was a uh, uh, manager of a uh, shipping uh, department in a music publishing company. He knew all the American songbook, Gershwin and Cole Porter. My mother did, too. And... Uh, we lived in the Bronx, five of us in a two-bedroom apartment. We were never thought we, we were not poor. We were a working-class uh, mm-hmm. family. And uh, um, he wound up uh, getting fired and on his out, uh, he must have been at the time 45 years old with no real uh, um, education for jobs and skills. And he wound up getting uh, uh, becoming a partner in the trucking business. And the only way you can be in the garment center at that time was to be well-connected, which he was. And they helped him uh, uh, become one of the partners. The other partners loved him because the whole garment center was open to them now. And they're still in business and they uh, it wasn't like uh, uh, they put him in and he, uh, he brought the business down. He really uh, allowed them to have a uh, uh, a place in, in the trucking business. And they had clients like Macy's and Lord and & Taylor and uh, things like that because of his connections. Listeners, what I want you to do is go to the show notes and get your hands on this book, Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz, The Jewish Mob, A Family Affair. We're going to get into about Uncle Charlie and Dutch Schultz, but the book is much more than that. It's the title, but it's more of a family memoir. And we're gonna I'm gonna give you some a little bit about it, but not all of it. And to kind of keep going here, when did you know, Alan, that your family was connected? Because from the book, they had part in two hundred bars in Manhattan. Yeah. Well- that was one of the uh, extended family uh, that I uh, came to much later uh, uh, in the uh, midst. Uh, oh, no, actually, I shouldn't say that because they were at my uh, bar mitzvah when I was 13. And I knew who all these people were. We knew Uncle Charlie was in jail. I didn't call him Uncle Charlie at the time, but we knew this man was in jail who was an integral part of the wider family crime culture. And we would meet him in, when I was in my mid-20s. But I always knew that these people, who they were, but it seemed so normal to us. When I'm asked about it, it was just normal. Mm-hmm. These were our uncles. I mean, I knew their children who were my age or a little older. They, I respected them in the same way I would everybody else. And every so often, I'd pick up a newspaper and see a picture of, there's Sammy Goldstein, there's so-and-so, there's a, an article in a paper about skim in Las Vegas, but by then I was probably uh, in high school, and there was Uncle George's uh, uh, <laughs> mentioned in it, and so we always were aware of it. My brother uh, was a detective in New York at the time, but what made that interesting was that they treated him in a different way. They, he was, I mean, they were not afraid of the police. Uh, they loved sharing their stories, and he loved telling them stories about uh, his world as well. And my sister is, uh, my brother passed away. My sister is an attorney in Boston, and she was really interested in it because 
of the women. She sat with the women whose stories I was never interested in. I was interested in the men's stories. Sure. But as I got older, I realized the women's stories were more poignant and more perceptive in a lot of ways because they were the ones who had to take care of the family if the men went away for jail three, four, five years. And ironically, as soon as the men got out of jail, they found girlfriends. <laughs> so the women were always, uh, at that time, it, it, I mean, uh, that was almost uh, inevitable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was part of that culture, of the men's culture. So uh, we were always aware of, of, uh, uh, of who these people were, but it, it was, uh, uh, we always loved seeing them. And we also, my mother's side of the family had none of them. It was all my father's side. My mother were Greek Jews, and uh, they spoke Greek. Uh, we never learned it. Family secrets among them. But uh, so we always were connected to a reality of normal aunts and uncles with the normal family mm. interactions. We talked just a little bit about Uncle Charlie was in jail and you finally and you met him in your 20s. But explain to me and my listeners, who was Waxy Gordon? Waxy Gordon was one of the old-time bootleggers. Uh, he was uh, uh, he was one of the mob bosses in the twenties, into in the late twenties, and in the into the very early thirties. He was a few years older than the two men who were taking over uh, the mob in New York: Lucky Luciano and Maya Lansky. And he never accepted their um, uh, uh, leadership. Because he was older, he was a little more out on the street, and so they ultimately uh, had to take him out, and they did it by setting him up for tax evasion, uh, because Al, Al, Al Capone had just been convicted of uh, tax evasion, and so... Uh, uh, the New York authorities went after Waxy Gordon and the people who provided a lot of information of his tax records were uh, allegedly Maya Lansky and Lucky Luciano to get him out of the way. But he was a, uh, 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 a mob boss and years later, uh, that, I'm talk this was in the 30s, but in 1951, he got arrested with three other men in a sting, a drug sting, and two of the men were the closest people to my family I could ever imagine, Sammy and Benny Cass. And Sammy had been Waxy Gordon's right-hand man when he was a teenager and in the early 30s. And so Sammy told us a lot of the history of him and Waxy Gordon, and he wound up going to jail for 15 years. And uh, uh, Waxy Gordon, when he got arrested, uh, he knew it was the end of the line. And there's a picture in the book of the four of them standing uh, in a wall in the police station, and you look at Waxy Gordon, and you uh, know he's he 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 died two years later mm -hmm. in prison. So, how did Waxy's imprisonment pave the way for Arthur Flegenheimer, which is known as Dutch Schultz? Dutch was a bootlegger, speakeasy owner, labor racketeer, bouncer, and a killer, mainly in the Bronx and Harlem, New York. He was clearing. Ten to twenty thousand a year from the numbers rackets. Million, well, millions. millions. He would. I don't. Yeah. So, so how was, did was it Waxy's imprisonment that gave Dutch the leeway to go forward? I, I, I would say, and this is from my own research writing for the book. I wanted to get a lot of these uh, facts. Uh, both um, uh, Waxy Gordon and Dutch Schultz were on the outs with the 
organized crime. The people who, it's interesting, they were organizing crime in the late 20s, but it was really becoming uh, more of a corporate structure. Mm. And the two people, both who were on the outs for their own reason, were Waxy Gordon and Dutch Schultz because of their personality. They just couldn't fit into this corporate structure. And they had just taken out two old-time Italian bosses, uh, Masseria and Maranzano. And now they went after Waxy Gordon and Dutch Schultz because these were the kind of people they... They, they had a bigger picture. That they had a really a corporate uh, picture. So when Waxy Gordon went to jail, I, I can't say that they were related in any way, uh, because as soon as Waxy Gordon went to jail, Dutch Schultz was on his decline. Uh, he, he was always on the outs, the way he dressed. He dressed uh, more like a vagrant, as one reporter uh, called him. He wasn't, uh, he, he, he just didn't have what it took to be one of these uh, uh, corporate executives of sorts, mob corporate executives. The numbers racket was a huge, big money situation back in those days. And the number collectors would rent apartments as out-of-the-way offices for a few hours each afternoon after the last horse race was finished, tell us about Mrs. Luis, who lived across the way from you in apartment 25. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Lewis lived across. We were in apartment 21. And they were in the Bronx. And it was very normal. All of these, there were like 60 build, uh, apartments in one building and maybe 10 buildings on a block. So you can imagine how many people were there. But... Uh, I was always aware of single men or single women having a one-bedroom apartment, living very quietly in our building and other buildings. I always respected. And my father pointed out to me when I was very young, a lot of them were being financed by the mob. Maybe their husband died mm. uh, in some mob-related activity. There was no Social Security. Remember, we're talking about 50s and 60s. These guys didn't sign up for Social Security <laughs> in the 30s. And so they were taken care of by the mob. And one of the things the uh, numbers people found very uh, attractive was they could settle their books, whatever, however they did that, after, as you mentioned, the last racetrack, because the number would, one of the numbers would be printed in the newspaper in the total mutual handle, the amount of money betted during the whole day, the last three digits would be that number. So uh, they would go in and figure out how to, who to pay. And they did it away from uh, the street. Mm -hmm. to, and Mrs. Lewis many times would say to me, Alan, could you go out and get me a nice coffee cake? Uh, she would knock on the door. Is Alan home? Because I would be the one who would do that. My brother was older. My sister, they weren't going to send out to do it. So I'd go to the bakery and come back with a coffee cake and get a pat on the head from Mrs. Lewis. And she, was in, she would leave and often come into our house when our apartment when uh, these men would come and do whatever they want. We knew them by sight. They knew us. It was... So normal. <laughs> it was just a normal day. A normal day. <laughs> How did Dutch Schultz's greed for money and becoming the operator of the Coney Island racetrack in Cincinnati figure into his demise? Well, uh, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, a, a lot of the history revolves around him wanting to. Uh, he was targeted by the governor of New York. Governor Lehman, who hired uh, Thomas Dewey, a young prosecutor who had just prosecuted, I believe, um, Waxy Gordon, and uh, Dutch Schultz wanted to kill him. 
and that was out of bounds for this orga new organization, organized crime, and they said, no, you can't do it. So that was often the way that uh, it was perceived that, and that I'm sure ha was the largest part. But he also owned a racetrack, or he was partners with a race in a racetrack, had some uh, managerial or uh, uh, ownership in a racetrack outside of Cincinnati. And what that did for him, being he was so, he, he didn't see that if you, uh, if someone won the number and it got collected a 600 to one on a 900 to one bet you'd want to take those bets you that's your best advertisement in the neighborhood someone mm -hmm. won and right. they go, here's your money and they're walking around buying drinks for everybody what could be better advertisement he just couldn't give up that 600 bucks or <laughs> 60 bucks as it might have been to someone who bet a penny or a dime or whatever it was so uh uh he he fixed the number at the racetrack Mm. They used his racetrack in Cincinnati instead of any of the other ones. Somehow he was able to uh, manage that. And he hired a mathematician uh, uh, who got killed with him, who had just come back. And the guys in Cleveland, uh, I, found, I knew this to be uh, true because uh, Uncle George was by this point an uh, 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 integral part of the Cleveland syndicate that wanted the racetrack. And they were moving south into Cincinnati. And they wanted uh, the racetrack. As, and uh, they had been talking to Dutch Schultz about a piece of that action because that was in their turf in Ohio. And uh, uh, so uh, Dutch, uh, uh, so they the night supposedly even the night before the uh, uh, math the the mathematician uh, who ran who was able to fix the number uh, uh, they they were talking to him the Cleveland syndicate he came back to New York and he got killed the next day or a few within a very short time along with two other guys and Dutch Schultz uh, but uh, that was the point of the racetrack for Dutch Schultz was to never give out a dime <laughs> when it was the as I. It was uh, the best money you could have spent to mm -hmm. have a few winners. You mentioned Uncle Charlie killed Dutch Schultz in the Palace Chop House Good. in Newark, New Jersey at approximately 10 to 15 p.m. on October 23, 1935. Louis Lepke had Murder Incorporated, which was an organized crime hit squad, picked out one of his most reliable gunmen and your Uncle Charlie. That's right. And... Uh, as I mentioned a little earlier, of course, I didn't know Uncle Charlie till he got out of jail. And uh, but w one of the reasons for the title of the book, and I, I said it when I was at the Mob Museum, it was the first time it really occurred to me as I was talking. Uh, the first thing I wrote when I wrote the book was Uncle Charlie killed Dutch Schultz, and then it was a blank page. And two or three years later, there were 60,000 words changed around in paragraphs and uh, chapters and photographs. The only thing that stayed the same was Uncle Charlie killed Dutch Schultz. <laughs> and the re one of the reasons was I remembered when he was in, in jail and we knew of him and his uh, sort of uh, reputation and that event because it was replayed a lot of times in TV shows. Charlie was a 25-year-old guy, goes into uh, the chop house with uh, Mendy Weiss, and they shoot it out with four men. They kill all four of them, Dutch Schultz being one of them. And then he uh, goes through Dutch Schultz's pocket, takes out $8,000, and when he comes back out, the car left. It was a big deal among him and his partner. 
And he walked all the way back to Manhattan or Brooklyn. Uh, he was at 25. But the, and so this was the guy we knew of. And when he got out of jail, he was no longer 25 years old. And we, one, my brother and I, one of us said, did Uncle, uh, by this point we were calling him Uncle Charlie, did Uncle Charlie really kill Dutch Schultz? <laughs> uh, pointing at, it was not pointing at him, but uh, when my father heard that, he said, uh, don't ever take Charlie. <laughs> don't underestimate Charlie. <laughs> Trust me, Charlie killed uh, Schultz, and Charlie is still a bad guy. I mean, not bad in the sense he was always charming and delightful with us. But the reason why we called him Uncle Charlie, he was uh, very close to my Uncle George, who was a main character and most successful of all the uh, uh, organized crime figures, and my parents, both my mother and my father, but when he was in jail, my father was one of the men who brought money to the family over the 23 years. And they specifically wanted people like him who had no criminal record, going back to the point you asked earlier. This was one of his functions. He would bring money to him. And Charlie, when he got out of jail, was very uh, appreciative of that. And also, when he got out of jail, he was... Uh, nervous about, uh, he had a reputation and he was nervous about the parole board coming after him and trying to make a reputation for themselves and uh, um, go, uh, 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 making a reputation and trying to put him back in jail. But my brother was a detective and he said, don't ever worry about that. We'll take care of the parole people because mm. my brother had his own connections in the very corrupt New York Police Department of that era. So Charlie always referred to us as his nephews. He called me his nephew whenever he introduced me, and I could never think of calling him anything but Uncle Charlie. Charlie and Mendy Weiss had a falling out after that murder. Because Mendy pretty much took off and left Dulch, as you said he had to walk. But it gets a little farther with Abe Kid Twist Ruelas, who becomes an informant, and basically tells that Charlie killed Dutch Schultz, and then Uncle Charlie received a life sentence. Correct. Where did Abe Relis come into this whole picture? He was one of the uh, Murder Incorporated hitmen. Okay. He had a position of uh, uh, fairly high up in that uh, hierarchy, and uh, uh, a, new, uh, a new DA took over in Brooklyn, uh, and... Uh, really thought, no one really thought all these murders uh, had an organization behind it. There was just a lot of murders in New York, in Brooklyn, and this uh, DA named William O'Dwyer, who was born in Ireland, a laborer, a policeman, became DA. He went after them. And a few lucky breaks, which I, I went through in the, in the book, uh, Abrellis wound up informing on Murder Incorporated. And as soon as it became obvious that it was a, a group of hired hitmen under, as you mentioned, Lepke uh, and Albert Anastasia, a reporter, called it Murder Incorporated for the first time, and the name stuck to this day. Here we are uh, uh, 80 years yeah. later talking about Murder Incorporated. And uh, Abe Rellis and another uh, one of the hitmen, TikTok Tannenbaum, his name was, 
they both were ready to testify against uh, Uncle Charlie. And a lot of them, they were getting convicted. As soon as this case broke open, they were, it wasn't like now. You get a death sentence, you're, you're going the next month. And uh, so to avoid the death sentence, he pleaded no contest and got a life sentence. And he was paroled after 23 years. But uh, one of the, uh, when you asked earlier about uh, how this all appeared as a younger person, I remember walking on the boardwalk in Coney Island with a few, uh, my father, some of his friends, maybe my mother was there too. And we walked by and someone pointed to the uh, building that Abrellis was thrown out of uh, uh, a hotel. Uh, supposedly he jumped or was trying to escape with a uh, um, uh, he was bed forced, sheets. forcibly, bed, forcibly. forcibly. <laughs> was, I mean, it was ridiculous. He was, he was, uh, they had him in a hotel under heavy guard, uh, because he was testifying against everybody. And my, uh, someone pointed out and said, Oh, that's the building. A.B. Rellis was, uh, he was thrown out that window. Uh, and I said, I was nine. I said, you mean someone was thrown out of a window? And then they said, yeah, the police threw him out. The police threw him out of a window. I was nine years old. And, uh, and they said, yeah. And it was right near the fun house. And this was their jokes. That was their idea, idea of dad jokes at the time. You brought up Sammy Cass earlier. How, what was his impact on how Murder Incorporated was so effective? Sammy, uh, from what I understood from my father, brother, and uh, bits and pieces from Sammy, he, he was very close to us uh, for his whole life when he got out of jail after the Waxy Gordon bust in the late 60s. And Sammy uh, worked for uh, Waxy Gordon. He was a teenager. In the uh, uh, when Waxy went to jail and he became one of the Murder Incorporated guys along with Uncle Charles, they all knew each other. It was amazing. It was sort of like people in a in a big band in the fifties. Uh, Years later, they're all going to still know each other. And uh, but Sammy uh, was uh, a young hitman, and he remained. He was the most. We always joked in the family, he was the most hardened criminal of all of them. He went from Waxy Gordon's right-hand man to being Fat Tony's right-hand mm-hmm. man. And uh, Fat Tony was one of the people who always uh, looked out for my father's business. Um, uh, 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 Tony went to jail around the time my father died. But my uh, uh, fat, the, the, as we joked and as the joke was, uh, Sammy Cass was the closest Jew to Fat Tony, uh, and they loved each other because they both had that old school mentality. Uh, so Sammy was always a, a he was always a criminal and uh, never anything else. But uh, one of the more funny and lovable characters in our family uh, culture. Tell me about Arnold Rothstein, who was a sports fixer. He was a corruption machine. I mean, he was involved in the 1919 Black Sox with the Chicago White Sox and Cincinnati Reds. Was he connected into your family too? No, he he wasn't uh, at all. He he died. He was he died. He was uh, shot in 1928, right around the time of the presidential election, of which he had put a lot of money on. He was a, as we would call it now, a degenerate gambler. He grew up in a uh, family uh, that uh, came to uh, America, German Jewish family, that uh, had some money and some. Uh, uh, prestige in that community, but all he wanted to do was be on his knees shooting crap in an alleyway or in a in a uh, nice uh, 
uh, illegal uh, speakeasy at the time. And you mentioned he he was uh, he was the man who a lot of people credited with getting every all the Jewish and Italian gangsters uh, and probably every other ethnic group together and saying there's so much money on the table here. Why are we killing each other? It was bootleg time, the twenties, and. Uh, his his uh, vision prevailed, although he didn't live to see it to its uh, next stage, uh, which came a few years after he passed away. But I, I remember my Uncle George once saying, and I heard him say this, and it really impressed me, was that uh, Arnold Rothstein was looked up to so much in the 20s in New York by these young teenagers. My uncle was a teenager at the time. Uh, and here was Arnold Rothstein in the neighborhood coming out of places. And he came out of a, a, a doorway and he just took a few bucks out of his pocket and he called Uncle George over, who was 12 or 13 years old. And oh, Arnold Rothstein is calling me over. He gave him the money. He says, you know that crap game that Nate runs down under da da da, whatever the street was? Uh, give him this and tell. And I was like, Arnold Rothstein, uh, he was so stunned by it. He, I mean, here he was a big-time operator in Las Vegas, and he still remembered. And he said he gave it to Nate, and he said, Arnold Rothstein gave me this to give to you. And he said he mentioned Arnold Rothstein's name and his in the same sentence. And that was a big deal to him as a 12-year-old. But one of the things that I always found interesting was that <coughs> Arnold Rothstein was never found guilty of being part of the 1919. Yeah. And some people, and I don't know what's true or not, was that he knew the fix was going to happen, so he bet on the who would be the winner, and he never had to put up any money. <laughs> and that gave him a lot more street cred mm. at the time. That's what I heard from those old-timers. Whatever was true or not, he had a lot of uh, street credibility because he bet on the uh, winning side in a fixed World Series. July 25th, 1939. The murder of Irving Penn, a music publishing executive. Why is that significant? Well, the uh, one of the men who was in, uh, uh, involved in that was a man named J uh, Jacob uh, Cuppy Migden, who later became the closest family. Uh, uh, he got me my first job in the Painters Union years later. But Cuppy was a second echelon, a murder incorporated guy, and Lepke wanted to take out a uh, union official who lived in this nice building in the Bronx, not far from where I grew up years later. And uh, Cuppy was the one who was watching, and he pointed out the wrong guy. He pointed out a business executive, Irving Penn, as you just mentioned, uh, and they sh shot and killed him on the street. And his last words were supposedly to a detective, I never had an enemy in my life. And why that was significant was that up until that point, organized crime was seen as part of the community. They brought uh, 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 booze to people during Prohibition. They took their numbers. They took uh, they 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 were not enemies to these people. They uh, to the in the neighborhood. They had good publicity until that moment. Everything changed after that. The newspapers went after organized crime. Although they still didn't know until a year later, as I mentioned, uh, it became uh, after Abe Rellis was. Uh, 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 turned in, uh, turned himself in, uh, uh, and the name Murder Incorporated uh, became part of our uh, 
our vocabulary. But it was that moment that Cuppy uh, pointed out the wrong guy. Cuppy went on, uh, left, uh, ran away. The other two guys who were involved were arrested, and Cuppy had some uh, surgery done to his face, but they still arrested him. He did time in Sing Sing. And years later, I knew him as uh, part of the uh, uh, extended family uh, organized crime culture. And I always knew about that incident ever since I was probably 10 years old. It was just, oh, yeah, Cuppy pointed out the wrong guy and they killed the wrong guy. It was just just a normal conversation. <laughs> the book is called Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz. Go to the show notes and click a link so you can get your copy of it. We're going to go more into the family memoir side. Elliot Ness. His personal life was in turmoil. He was drinking heavily. He had made some bad business choices. He died in 1957 from a heart attack. He is most fictionalized in the movie The Untouchables. People you knew at the time said he was a bum and he died penniless. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that was just one of many, uh, 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 let's say, uh, counter uh, uh, um counter views to uh, public <laughs> figures and this story about Elliot Ness as we all know he he he, he never really uh, captured Al Capone Al Capone got arrested for uh, went to jail for tax evasion but Elliot Ness wound up moving to of all places Cleveland which by that point my uncle George and uh, uh, and several other people uh, related to the family were really building out these amazing gambling casinos that became the archetype for Las Vegas, which they later came to. They had, by the time they came to Las Vegas, they had 20 years experience of uh, running illegal. And these weren't casinos on the roadside, in the back of roadside bars. These were standalone casinos with first-rate uh, dining rooms and entertainment, all the, uh, uh, I think you mentioned Keely Smith when we were talking yeah. before, Louis Prima, Keely Smith, people of that uh, 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 stature at the time. And so um, Elliot Ness was there. All He was the public safety director of Cleveland, and uh, nothing ever changed. As a matter of fact, one of the th jokes was that one of his uh, chief lieutenants was uh, very, had been very much involved in the numbers uh, for, uh, for decades or for almost his whole career. I think he wound up getting arrested and going to jail. But they all saw Elliot Ness as this hapless guy and nothing like the... Uh, you, you mentioned he died in 1957. I think that was around the time, a year or two before or after, that the uh, TV show, The Untouchables, and every bit of that, as I would get running commentary in my family, it was probably the most watched show in my extended family of like how it was all wrong and a lot of BS. But uh, Elliot Ness was always seen as a, uh, a sad sack character in my family. We brought up Uncle George many times, but he was linked to the underworld figures like George Raft, Frank Sinatra. He caught the eye of Mo Daylitz. He arranged for George to take a suitcase of cash to Meyer Lansky's crew in Saratoga Springs, New York, when he was barely 18 years old. Did this get Uncle George hooked into the life? Was oh, it, is that the point? I, um, I can't say exactly, but I know that, um, my story began with him as a 12, 13-year-old climbing into the back of a dry goods store and taking money out, and they, him and his partner, Ruby Collett, who incidentally 
the two of them became partners for their whole life. And Ruby Collard was the one who became the president of the Desert Inn and told Howard Hughes, you got to leave now. That was Uncle George's partner for his whole life. But Ruby and uh, George, uh, they, uh, when they were 18, uh, George, as you mentioned, went to Myelansky. And uh, he was probably seen as a young up-and-comer because we forget 18 then is different than 18 now. Oh, yeah. It wasn't like he had to sit around and think about what his career was going to be like. Uh, so 18, they were already... Uh, uh, they were already well set into their, their career. And when he came back to New York, the man who mentored both of them, uh, Ruby and Uncle George, was Trigger Mike Coppola. He took him to work in a casino, in New York, uh, a speakeasy that had a casino, and they both managed it. They ran into trouble, and by that, and he sent them back to uh, Modalitz. Luckily, he had been there. Mo said, okay, bring them here. They know casino, and Mo was building out. They were, the depression was, uh, uh, prohibition was coming to an end. And so they were really building out casinos as their next big uh, grift, mm. so to speak. And uh, um, Uncle George and Ruby went there. And for the next 20 years, they managed at a very high level all of these upscale casinos in Cleveland, Cincinnati, and then in Kentucky. And then they moved to Las Vegas where it was all legal. Right. You mentioned Uncle George and Ruby were basically the trusted ones for decades of the Cleveland for the Cleveland syndicate. And some of my listeners know the Cleveland syndicate and there's going to be listeners that don't. So for those of you that don't, the Cleveland four was Morris Kleinemann, Mo Dalitz, Sam Tucker, and Lewis Rothkoff. They were the brains behind one of the most successful organized crime syndicates in America from 1930 into the late 1970s. How did uncle Charlie and Uncle George, all these other people, you know, their lives change once they got connected with the Cleveland well, Four. Well, Uncle Charlie uh, uh, stayed in New York. He was never really directly connected with them. Although for okay. the next five years, from uh, Uncle George left in 1930 with Ruby and moved to Cleveland. And uh, Charlie was tightly involved with them for the next 10 years uh, 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 Till he was arrested in 1941. All of these people remain connected with each other. They all did jobs for each other. And when I always found out, as I w even when I was younger, that they all invested in each other's business. <laughs> they all had what they called a piece of each other's action. Uh, Trigger Mike, who was very close to Uncle George, Ruby, and Charlie. He invested as soon as they got moved to Cleveland and became um, casino managers. Moda, uh, um, Trigger Mike uh, invested in their casino. Trigger Mike took over Dutch Schultz's numbers in New York. As soon as Dutch Schultz was dead, uh, uh, Trigger Mike was on the case, and he was, became one of the richest mobsters ever, from what I heard. Although that might be hyperbole, I can't really say that for a fact, but it was always a fact that he controlled the numbers. And what I found interesting was that uh, the Cleveland Syndicate had money in the New York um, numbers racket. All of them had money in Meyer Lansky's growing casino business in Florida which start and Havana, which both started in the 1930s. So long before uh, the expression diversify your assets became something, these men who had very little schooling knew that that was the way to operate. 
Mm-hmm. And that built organized crime because they all had pieces of each other's business. And even though we hear a lot about the murders, which happened for sure, the, the amount of money that was changed every day was so extraordinary that uh, it became the biggest cash uh, flow industry in American history. In that time period, many criminals changed their names not to embarrass their families. And their new names made them feel more American. Can you give me and my listeners a couple examples? Well, uh, well, my Uncle George, for one, his last name was Geik, which was just a, a shortened Russian name that uh, uh, always seemed weird to us. But Uncle George changed it to Gordon. And uh, Ruby, Ruben Koloditsky, uh, uh, I believe that was his name, changed it to Ruby Khalid. And there were a lot of the... Uh, uh, Italian men changed their names and shortened it uh, as well. Uh, um, so the, uh, the numbers of uh, people, uh, uh, the Sammy Goldstein, who I always thought of as an uncle, he was a president of a Teamsters local in New York and wound up going to jail. He was changed his name to Sam Gold. Oh, so gotcha. everything was uh, shortened uh, at that point. <clears throat> By 1940, Uncle George and Ruby were veteran illegal gambling casino operators of the Cleveland Syndicate. In the 1950s, they would both be part of the criminal interest in the Desert Inn and the Stardust Casinos. Uncle George took the skim from the Stardust to the silent partners across the country. Was that to Kansas City? Was that to Chicago? Where was he taking the money? I believe it was to many cities. Okay. And uh, what I use, uh, I... Uh, I I found in my research a, a series of articles, investigative articles from the uh, Chicago Sun-Times. And in the 1963, it was uh, uh, referenced a lot in a Senate hearings about skim in Las Vegas. And they determined that, yeah, there was skim and nothing ever changed, of course. But in it, Uncle George was identified as the man who brought money to Sam Giancana mm-hmm. in Chicago and a Cleveland boss, too. And one of the other people he brought to was Trigger Mike Coppola, who remained until his death in the mid-60s, Uncle George's close friend and mentor. And the reason why Uncle George was the one who brought the money to Sam Giancana and Trigger Mike was because as soon as uh, the Desert Inn opened around 1958 or so, there was a black book. Uh, the the uh, gaming commission had a black book in which people were not allowed into the casinos. An arbitrary book, I'm sure. But two of the names were Sam Giancana and Trigger Mike Coppola, who both had interests. And they trusted Uncle George because they knew him for so long. And they didn't trust any of the other people. There was ethnic stuff going on, too. Uh, uh, but they, Uncle George was their eyes and ears in the stardust and uh, and the desert, and, and he, he brought money to both of them. And it was uh, really a relief, supposedly, as I read later, but I remember hearing at the time, to Mo Dalitz, who didn't want any trouble with them. He didn't need the aggravation of them not think, of them thinking he was ripping them off or whatever the cut was. And that was all part of the Chicago uh, Sun-Times, so I was glad to include that in the book <laughs> as sort of uh, not just me making up a story. The book is good, people. You got to get it. And I'm going to end here. I have three stories. And the first one, if you have to rewind to catch all this, you're going to have to rewind to catch the story because this one's fascinating and I love it. 
Tony Cornero, a gambler who had a resume of bootlegging, illegal gambling casinos, unsolved murders, and an assassination attempt on his life. He was looking for financing for the Stardust Casino in Las Vegas. Mo Dalitz, who we've talked about, was at the Desert Inn, and he wanted control of the Stardust. So Canero goes to Dalitz for cash, and <laughs> Dalitz turns him down. This is, get ready, here we go, on July 31st, 1955. Tony was at the Desert Inn playing craps, and a waitress brought him a drink. He drinks it and fell to the floor dead. The whiskey glass disappeared in seconds. A physician signed the death certificate immediately. His body was taken to the mortician and was in the ground in a Los Angeles cemetery eight hours later without an autopsy. Kicker, Mo Dalitz was on the casino floor that night. That's right. And, and who took control of the Stardust, the Cleveland Syndicate, of which Mo Dalitz was the uh, main guy. This is probably an unsolved murder. Uh, one of many. <laughs> it is. If I read that story, I'm like, this is classic. This it is was. I felt the same way when I first. I heard bits and pieces of it over the years. But do, again, doing research, a lot of it popped out of books for me as stories I had heard. Uh, not completely. I'm like, this is a classic <laughs> Las Vegas mob story from that time period of a guy wanting money and then. Drops dead to the floor, and eight hours later, he's buried, and everything's been signed and done. Uh, that's right. Alan, here's my question. Who was on the landline buying marijuana when an operator interrupted with an emergency call from Ezra Wiseman, the president of Israel, who was looking for Lou Lennart, who was in L.A.? Well, I'll... Uh, uh, the uh, I was on the phone. Oh, you were that. on yes. the phone. <laughs> now, what had happened was just as a little backstory. My late father-in-law of my late wife, uh, he was the first fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force, and uh, his name was Lou Lenard. And Azar Weitzman, who became the president of Israel, was in his uh, group of four, and they were friends for their whole life. And uh, Lou was a soldier of fortune. I loved him dearly. And he came to L.A. He lived in L.A. half the year, half the year in Israel. And I'm talking about I'm an adult now, and I'm married to his uh, daughter. And there were landlines at the time. Right. Where we would get these break-in calls. We all remember that. So I get a call of, I'm on the phone, buying marijuana, which was illegal <laughs> at the time, from a good friend of mine, the phone uh, operator. I got an emergency call from Azar Weitzman in Israel. I Pick, uh, uh, yes, he said. Oh, Alan, uh, how are you doing? I know of you, and you, uh, I knew. Uh, how's lovely Nina? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Lou around? And I said, No, I, I, I don't know where he is, but I'll, I'll give him. I'll tell him to call you. And he said, Oh, okay, and send my love to darling Nina. <laughs> and I said, Oh, okay, Mr. Weitzman. And I got back to my drug buying. <laughs> Another great story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Alan, tell me about meeting Meyer Lansky in 1958 and having a pastrami sandwich. <laughs> well, before we went on the air, I think we were talking about how things were, people were normal. Mm. There wasn't social media at the time. I knew who Meyer Lansky was from the time I was younger, but he was more like, uh, he was a part of this extended group of people. Uncle George knew him really well from the time he was 18. But to, to get to, uh, my father, whenever Uncle George came to town, he stayed at the uh, Essex House or the Hampshire House, two really upscale places on Central Park South. 
we were in the Bronx, uh, in the five, five of us in a two-bedroom apartment, so this was a big deal to go to see Uncle George, and I could order anything in room service. They didn't care. Nobody cared. So my father asked me to come down this one time, so I went to Uncle George's suite filled with guys, so cigar smoke, cigarette smoke, booze around, and uh, my father, we were going to go somewhere, and there's a man sitting at the, at the uh, window reading a newspaper, sun coming in, I knew who it was. It was Meyer Lansky. And my father comes, introduces me to him, and uh, he says, this is my uh, younger son, uh, Alan. I said, oh, hi, Mr. Lansky. And he looks at me, and he says, uh, do you want a pastrami sandwich? And it was the last thing I would have expected. But again, he was more like an older man in my neighborhood, of which I knew so many. And I said, no, no, thank you. And he said, well, why don't you share one with me? Uh, and he thought, and he said, you know, pastrami killed more Jews than Hitler. Now, when he said that, I broke up laughing. And I, looking back, and maybe I'm reading into it, I t he saw my reaction was so genuine. I wasn't one of the sinker fans or people around him probably who were uh, uh, laughing at all of his jokes. And he had a smile on his face. And uh, he said, now you go out and you go pick up these sandwiches at the stage deli, which was the go to Delhi at the time and I and don't tell him it's mine tell him tell him it's from one of the other people and I went out and did that and for the rest of uh for many years after that whenever my brother might say hey I got a gold shield I'm now a detective I said yeah but I had a sandwich with I had a pastrami sandwich with Mario <laughs> Lansky and the thing that I always remember about it was that it was just it was just a normal a normal, and as I, I, I think over the years it became uh, so much more. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, now it is. And when I look back, I just think of uh, uh, fondly of this older man sharing a joke with me. What did you think of Meyer? Well, uh, I knew who he was and I knew the respect he had, both in the Italian and Jewish community, <coughs> that he really, he, he, he and Lucky Luciano, who had this uh, uh, great relationship for their whole lives, as many Jews and Italians did, as mm -hmm. I mentioned in the book, it was one of the social uh, 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 things of interest to me of how they came together. But Meyer, uh, in, that, in that afternoon, I also remember, which I didn't put in the book, somewhere along the way, he was uh, talking to someone, and he said to that person, you go, go kibitz, which is a Jewish word for a Yiddish word, and I don't really speak it, uh, for like, just go and, uh, and chatter, chatter, have small talk, go kibitz, I'm kibitzing with the person over at the next table. And I said, oh, look at, because they all, they all spoke Yiddish, all of these, uh, just as the Italian criminals generally mm. spoke uh dialects of uh of italian and so i always remember he said go kibitz with someone i want to talk to sammy you go kibitz with so and so and the guy walked away and sammy came and i i left alan thanks so much for coming to the lemon tree coming on the show and talking about the book this was great fun and uh thank you so much again for having me tommy you are welcome people we are at the lemon tree cafe and market once again located 6111 south buffalo drive suite 150 in las vegas go to lemon tree cafe lv.com or go to instagram and follow them at lemon tree cafe and market there'll be a link in the show notes as well in their market, you can shop from elevated selection of items such as fresh meats, imported deli meats, oils, vinegars, and more. Whether it's 
preparing memorable meals or just want to come hang out, this is the place to go. That's going to do it for this episode of Before the Lights. But before we go, I got to ask you to do something for me. Take 30 seconds out of your day. Rate and review the show. Five stars. Nice comments are always appreciated. And until next time, everybody, I salute a chin chin. Chin chin.